Ben, what's happening, man? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. Uh, love love all your content on Instagram, by the way. Just thought I'd get that out there. And uh, yeah, that's how I found out about you. So pumped to be here. Been following you for a little while now. Thanks, man. Back at you. I mean, I, I feel like you've I feel like uh, you just have been blowing up on the scene right now and uh, just out of nowhere, uh, cranking out content <laughs> and uh, just like multiple posts per day. And in in a world of this crazy Instagram algorithm where like people barely see other people's posts by now, like it just like has zero reach whatsoever. You're cranking out content and it's been super, super fun to watch. Um, you, you know, have been at least putting out super relevant content for some of the people that follow me and also just myself uh, have been able to learn some stuff. So it's been super fun. Give us a little classic podcast intro of who you are, mostly how you pronounce your last name and just a little oh, bit man. about how you got into the space and what you do now. You know, the last name is always a point of contention, you know, on, on podcasts and in life outside of this. But uh, yeah, so my name is Ben Giannis. So like the basketball player, that's usually what I go with, is with except, you know, it's kind of weird because like he's Greek and he's spelt with the GIA. So there's that, there's that whole thing that confuses people. So and you're not honestly Greek. like I am not Greek. No, I'm actually Cuban, Cuban. Yeah. Of a Cuban influence. I do not speak Spanish, though. Um so yeah, uh, last name is Giannis and I have been a personal trainer for a couple of years now. Um, I actually graduated not too long ago from, from college. I was a health science major in college. So, um, you know, and before that I played lots of sports. So I was just a classic, one of those, like, Hey, I used to play sports and I used to lift for sports. And that's how I got into lifting kind of a deal. I was never good enough to actually really play in college or beyond. So this is kind of where I ended up. I think that's pretty common for personal trainers these days. Um, but for the most part, I kind of dive into the education side of things, or I dove into the education side of things, um, probably late high school, early college, and, and really was just focused on studying, you know, not necessarily for school, but for my own sake uh, throughout that time. And, you know, I had a couple classes that were actually relevant, like orthopedic anatomy that always piqued my interest. Um, and so that's kind of where I dove deeper into things. And, you know, ever since starting out as a personal trainer, um, I've really enjoyed uh, just being able to you know, obviously help my, my clients, but also help the trainers around me and, and having success with their clients. Um, you know, up to this point, I've only done one in-person seminar, but I've done a few different, um, you know, venues as far as just online teaching goes. And, and I have an education platform as well that I try to educate personal trainers on. So, you know, at the moment, you could technically say that I'm a personal trainer, but my passion more lies in helping out other personal trainers and having success with their own clients, um, you know, mostly from an anatomy and a biomechanics uh, standpoint. Do you ever feel like, uh, it's interesting because I think you're an intellectual person. I think you think deeply about this stuff. And I, I like that part of this myself. I find this to be an intellectually stimulating pursuit as well. But like when somebody asks you what you do, like I always struggle to like communicate. There's just, you say personal trainer, I have a, you know, I'm a MNU certified nutritionist. Like if, but, but you just end <laughs> up saying personal trainer and then just like everybody else, just like their ears just kind of shut down. They're oh, you're a personal trainer. Yeah. It's just like tough yeah. to art really articulate it. My parents can't still can't articulate like what it is that I do. Do you ever find mm -hmm. that to be the case? Yeah, 100%. That's like the most relatable thing I've ever heard, actually. Um, I, I think that, you know, over time, or at least in the beginning, I was really insecure about it. And I would like try to, you know, drag on this whole explanation, this elevator pitch. But now I kind of just say, yeah, I'm a personal trainer. And like, I coach other personal trainers. That's basically what I do. Um, which is, you know, I, I think it's good enough, for the most part. 
I think it's a combination of like having attempted to articulate it in a bit more detail and, and found that to be annoying, just as annoying as like right. giving a shit what anybody else thinks anyway. And it's like, if you follow me on Instagram, it's uh, it's weird that in today's age, sometimes I just end with like, hey, if you follow me on Instagram, like you'll know like kind of what I'm about. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Was there? Yeah, a, and I think that's an easier way to do it too, yeah. for sure. Was there it's a moment in your, effective. in like a, cause you're coming from a slightly academic background. I actually think that it's, it's almost, <sighs> Maybe that's not fair because this is my own bias from where I came from, but it's interesting that like, I think there's a lot of people who get into this, not as a, like, I don't know what your initial goal was with the health services. I think you said health service major. Um, but like mm-hmm. what, like there are, I just find most people aren't actually going to school for this. It ends up being something that people find that they're passionate about along the way, or it's a fallback that then they dive in with both feet. Was there a moment in your academic career where you were like, wow, this is intellectually stimulating and I don't just want to do this. I want to be the best at it. I want to know, you know, the most, maybe you latched onto biomechanics and anatomy. Like, was there a moment, a class, a person, a course that kind of sparked your interest in that intellectual pursuit? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think that um, there wasn't necessarily, you know, a, a singular moment per se, but it was more so just like this gradual thing of in high school, uh, I was just really interested in lifting. It really had nothing to do with the the biomechanics anatomy side of things until I started taking courses that, you know, involve that kind of stuff um, because I found it actually difficult to like figure out where to start. And I know that's a, you know, a problem area for a lot of people now is just like, where do I start? Because there's just so much information out there. So even if you're starting from a place where you could consider it in some way, objectively wrong, it's like, it's better to start than to not. So that was kind of like what college was for me. And I think for the most part, I actually wanted to be like a PT and a, or a Cairo. Like that was the vision that I had in my head, especially because it was like, yeah, my parents have like spent all this money for me to go to school and this expensive college. Like I should probably do something that's like a little bit more respectable, you know, than like go out and try to, you know, train people uh, in, a, in a personal training setting. But um I ended up sticking to my gut after I found out that like most PTs and Kairos just have no idea what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I know a few that I, I think really, really know their stuff. And so that, you know, those were the exceptions, but I kind of was like eh, a little bit skeptical about all that stuff when I, when I started to learn more and, and, you know, could poke holes in, in lots of different people's logic, even just from a, you know, obviously I'm sure, you know, like, physical therapy, the world of physical therapy in a lot of ways can be a disaster for people. So that's when I started to steer away from that stuff. And then, you know, personal training, it was. I think it ends up being a a thought of one, what, what kind of person and in what setting you actually feel passionate about helping. And I also thought, okay, I'm going to go do something in this personal training realm, but I, I almost thought, well, you can't just stop there. You know, you can't just be a personal trainer. It's not, respe- it's not respectable enough. You know, uh, I'm better than that. Right. I want to do something that's deeper, a little bit more intellectual than that. And it just kind of, there's like a myth almost, I think in people up and coming in the industry of like one, that you'll make more money doing that, or you'll, you know, you'll be a more respectable, you have a more respectable, like a, an acronym after your name or something like that. And the reality is from like a money standpoint, that's one motivator that you can say, I actually don't think exists. I think that there's like fairly uh, equal opportunity to be making a living doing either of these things. And also it's like what kind of archetype or what kind of character person do you want to be helping? And what do you want to be doing? What does your actual day to day look like? And probably want to help more people get healthy and generally lift and be pain-free. And not that there's anything wrong with actually one of my good friends here is a a chiropractor. I've had him on the podcast. He's like, actually like 
one of the good ones, which is why he was on here. Um, mm-hmm. Just like wasn't something that wasn't the setting that I wanted to be helping people with. I thought it was w- way more enjoyable for me to be helping the average person get healthier and build muscle and, and strength and be strong and confident. And, and for whatever reason, that just, I feel like is a misconception. People think they have to go further and they're, it's not respectable otherwise. Yeah. I, and I also think that, well, for the book, like just reminding me, like in college, I, I uh, had an internship uh, under the strength and conditioning program. So I worked with a lot of athletes and I was like super pumped about it. I was like coaching 6 a.m. sessions, 7 a.m. sessions, you know, two, three, four times a week, depending on the week. And, you know, I was like, I was super excited just to get to work with like higher level athletes. And, you know, none of them wanted to be there. And it took me about, you know, five minutes to into my first session to figure that out. And so, you know, I guess part of that too was like, it was kind of blended at the time with the PT Cairo route, because I was like, oh, well, if I'm a PT, maybe I can be like a sports PT or like, you know, a trainer on a, on a, on a professional football staff or something like that. And, you know, obviously there are exceptions to the rule where you have athletes who are super into the weight training side of things. But for the most part, it's like, no one wants to be there. And uh, I figured that out pretty quickly. So I think I just wanted to go in the direction, kind of like you're saying, of like being able to help the person that actually wants the help and isn't actually just being forced to, uh, you know, to to receive the help. There's there'd be really no way you can compete with Seedman anyway. So it really, it's like a it's, like, it's just really <laughs> you're really running up against a, an unstoppable force there, at the ninety degrees of uh, range of motion there. So you really were never going to compete with that. So I get you. I get no. you. I back out of that too. No. 90 degrees is too much to handle for sure. Especially when you just arbitrarily put 90 degrees to things that aren't actually 90 degrees. It's really unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Let's, let's pop into one of these first topics here. I'm going to jump out of order here. There's like, it's just, I okay. can imagine this is going to be a super short conversation, but there is this, uh, idea floating around. There's like a lot of people who my, my podcast is literally named where optimal meets practical. And so there's like mm-hmm. a lot of people out there that assume that those two things are always, and it's funny because the, the podcast actually also kind of implies that, although it, in this context is not true that there's some sort of like dichotomy between choosing something that might be optimal for your goal, whether that's like a specific exercise for a division of a specific muscle and there is something dichotomous between choosing that versus working hard and people who are pursuing, you know, this abstract optimality, which might not actually be abstract are somehow also not mm-hmm. able to, to work hard. They're somehow not mutually exclusive or are mutually exclusive. What the fuck is going on? And why is this actually something that we are talking about? How is it hard to understand that you could be doing both of these things? Yeah. So I think it's a combination of two things as far as like why it's even, you know, a conversation in the first place. Um, the first is that like so much of fitness now, um, and and personal training has derived in some way from like old school stuff. And mainly the old school stuff is like, I don't know. I think of West side, I think of like old school powerlifting and I think of like, you know, Ronnie Coleman bodybuilding. Those are the kinds of things that I think of. And those are the kinds of things that people generally associate with like lifting weights. And the problem with associating those kinds of things with, with lifting weights is that there's this expectation that like, you don't really need to like learn much. You kind of just need to like train really hard and be a total meathead. And like, you know, just like Ronnie and just like Dorian or just like, uh, you know, whoever else you want to name, like just be a meathead and go and smash weights and, you know, it'll work out. And like, you know, why bother if that's all you really need to do? And I think that for the most part, it's like, that logic isn't too bad, like intuitively, right? Like a lot of people just kind of need to, to learn how to work hard. Um, 
but I think there, there comes this point where like, you know, the hard work does actually meet, uh, you know, the, the, the optimal trading style, if you want to call it that, where like the two worlds can collide and the product of those two things can be, you know, exponential in terms of the, you know, the outcomes that they bring, not necessarily just from like a hypertrophy standpoint or a strength standpoint, but, you know, in, in other ways as well. Right. So, you know, from an osseo uh, perspective, like people's joint health, the way that they feel on a daily basis, how they're sleeping, like all those things are hyper relevant to, to everyone, but no one really starts to think about those things because they don't actually look at them as the priority. Right. But the guys who have like been in the game for a long time, um, this is actually a really timely conversation because I was talking to, um, I don't know if you know, Hunter Labrada. So he's um, like one of the you know top 10, uh, you know, Olympia guys. Right now. Yeah. And I was basically asking him just like, hey, dude, um, you know, what kinds of because I'm trying to cater content in, in some ways to people who are also, you know, super advanced and, and I want to be able to help them as well. And I think that if you cater content to them, it can also in some ways help people who are sort of on the lower end of that spectrum. And I was like, hey, dude, you know, what kinds of content would you feel like you would want to see? Like, what would help you or what do you think would help like the advanced bodybuilding community? And he was like, honestly, man, just like get the message out that, you know, you don't need to just be a meathead and like the, the whole optimal conversation versus working hard conversation. Those two are actually, you know, just the same thing. So, you know, coming from a guy who's, who's top 10 in the world for some time now, it's like, that's really, really, you know, a good sign. I think a good thing to hear. Um, but again, I think the root of it is really just people uh, being hyper attached to, to the old school style of, of training again, that has worked for a lot of people. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best way or that it's even a good way for most people. And I think something that you said there was one of the notes that I made there, there is some truth in these people who are like the, let's call them like the just shut up and lift crowd. Like there is right. some truth because the actual effort that you're putting forth per set is probably the single most important variable. I wouldn't say it is the, the majority, but if you had to pick one single variable that without it, just everything crumbles, it would be this. So there's some truth. It's just the, the idea that it can't be both. Now I would also mm -hmm. in a devil's advocate conversational way say there are people, there are circumstances where the forest is missed for the trees and people are, you know, listen, I've this happens to be every single day. I have a group of hundreds of people doing hypertrophy programming and I'm in the group chat answering questions every single day. And there are people who are getting in their own way in, in, in not understanding necessarily in the hierarchy of importance where this falls. When I say this, I mean maybe a certain arm path for, you know, I want to bias the rear delts or the upper back or the lats. And I'm just looking at that level of, you know, AB, a deduction or a deduction, whatever, where my arm is going to be. And their yep. inability to kind of, uh, or their inability to kind of, you know, not to be a perfectionist is getting in their way of putting forth effort. Now that is a practical circumstantial thing where somebody's letting that happen. They can still, you know, I'll often split squats. I'm, I have my group doing two different split squats, a um, front heel, <laughs> like a, a glute dominant and a quad dominant. And so a lot of yeah. times you'll have somebody who's doing the glute dominant and it's a little bit more quad dominant. They're just, for whatever reason it is, maybe they're they need to lean the torso more, or the shin needs to be a little bit more vertical or whatever. And it's like, we need to be, working on your technique, trending towards optimal over time, but also keeping that sort of hierarchy of importance in context of where does this fall? And and so there are practical times where people get in their own way with this sort of stuff, but that that doesn't, because it happens, doesn't mean that it, that is the only and 
outcome that will always happen for all people and that you can't get somebody to actually start to understand that these two things should live harmoniously together for a number of reasons. So I do think there's some truth. Yeah, effort is the most important thing, but because it's the most important doesn't mean it's the only thing that any person can have any brain power putting forth towards, you know? Right. And I think that this conversation becomes um, too much of like a narrow focused conversation. People are just viewing hypertrophy or strength in the context of itself, right? When they're not considering these 10 other things that um, their exercise choice, their exercise uh, execution uh, has influence over, right? So it's like, okay, you know, you, you can train really hard today and like you can just gas yourself out today um, and, and you'll feel good and you might make some progress over the coming weeks, you know, just, just doing what you're doing. But, you know, the guys who are the most successful are the guys who are thinking five years down the line, 10 years down the line, like, what am I going to be doing when I'm 30, 40, 50 years old? Not like just what am I doing right now? And inevitably every single person who has, uh, you know, been in this field long enough and, and trained for long enough is like, damn, I wish I wasn't such a jackass in my twenties. I wish that I paid more attention to this. I wish that I paid more attention to that. And it just takes people's, you know, it just takes people's ability to, to kind of swallow their pride and be like, Hey, you know, maybe I don't actually like know what I'm doing that much and that's okay. Maybe I just like need to learn a little bit more because I think this kind of follows the rule of, you know, the 80% rule or whatever it is. It's like, you learn like a little bit about this stuff and you apply just a little bit of it and you realize how much of a return on investment that it actually makes. And, you know, I think that if most people can actually experience that in real time, um, you know, with whether it's with themselves or with their clients, that it's like, it's not, it's not really a, a discussion. It's more just like, Hey, you need to experience this kind of a thing to, to actually understand it and how it's, you know, can impact you positively. Yeah, I agree. Let's um, I want to talk about choosing uh, or, or deciding what sort of exercises would be quote good for hypertrophy. Now there's a metric fuckload of context added needed to answer that adequately or best, right. let's say. And so what I would want to actually do is start to, as the coach, if someone's like, Hey, is this a good exercise for hypertrophy? What are some of the questions or contexts or pieces of information or variables or questions you're asking to kind of decide, you know, what, how would I rank certain exercises that might have overlap for hypertrophy? And so if someone's like, hey, is X a good ex exercise? What are the things you're considering about that exercise that might make it, quote, good for hypertrophy? And what sort of co context do we need to add or questions that we need to answer first before we can come to that? Yeah, so, so many layers to that. So many, so many onion layers there. Um, but, you know, the most, the most outer shell of the onion for me would be like, um, what am I trying to do in a hypertrophy focused program? And it's like, you know, whether or not people know it, to be honest, like even if they're powerlifters, I think they want to be jacked. Like, I think everyone wants to be jacked who's, you know, into trading to any degree, but you know, for the most part, the goal of a hypertrophy program is, is to just, is to grow lean tissue. Right. And it's to grow a lot of lean tissue and, you know, at the same time, try not to get too fat. And when you're doing that, it's like, okay, if I'm trying to grow as much muscle as possible, I need to know like, you know, what muscles I'm training, or at least hopefully for the most part. Um, and under that category, you know, you have a bunch of different things. Like you could look at the lats, or you could look at like the iliac lat and whether you look at the iliac lat or the lat is probably more so dependent upon like your training age, your experience. Like, do you even need to worry about that kind of thing? Like we already mentioned, um, 
But I think, you know, regardless, if you are able to actually understand what you're trying to train, um, then you work backwards from there. You don't, you don't start with like, you know, Hey, I'm going to train legs today and I'm just going to like get on every single machine. Obviously there are people that have done that. And like this, you know, this is all obviously connected. Um, but like the question is like, is that the most efficient way to do things? And that's why programs exist in general. It's because programs are basically just this way to organize things so that your training becomes more efficient. It's kind of just like why you would organize anything else. Like, why would you be organized for school? It's so that you can get things done in a timely fashion so that you can get things done in an efficient way. So starting from that, you know, premise, if I'm focused on like, or I have this sort of muscle centric view of why I'm doing what I'm doing, then I can start to, you know, work a little deeper than that and say, okay, well, if I'm trying to train the lats in general, um, I want to make sure that in an exercise and any exercise that I select, that the lats are going to be the rate limiter of the exercise, right? You don't want to be doing a lat exercise and, uh, you know, trying to balance on one leg and stabilize your core for functional purposes at the same time, right? It's kind of like this idea that, you know, uh, you're, you're doing everything, but you're doing nothing at the same time. So um, what am I trying to train and how specific you are? Obviously context dependent with that. Uh, and then, you know, is, am I able to make what I'm trying to train the thing that's limiting me in, in that exercise? So, um, you know, a lot of people obviously over time have poo-pooed this idea of like the isolation, the externally supported, um, you know, exercise for, for no good reason other than that, like, uh, I, well, I have a lot of theories on this, but I think for the most part, uh, people have created these kinds of ideas just to sell them. Um, I don't really think that these are things that people have actually uh, critically thought very much about, um, which obviously is kind of a different conversation on its own. But those are the main things I would say is like what makes a good hypertrophy exercise is like, you know what you're training first off. So you have an idea of what your goal is with an exercise and what the context might be. Um, and then, you know, just making sure from there that that tissue is the limiter of the exercise, which can come down to, you know, multiple different things. But for the most part, it's pretty subjectively easy to tell whether, you know, your lat is the limiter in an exercise or your quad, you know, is the limiter in an exercise. Yeah. I think a very like uh, 30,000 foot view is like, can I take the target muscle close to failure? You know, can I make that thing that I want to grow the limiter of the exercise? It's like the thing that is taken close to failure is the thing that's being trained. And I think we got at some point, I don't know if it's, if it's we or me or all of us at some point got caught up in this idea of the misunderstanding of stability requirements and things that like, you know, require core stability were somehow like a superior in all contexts. And again, it's all context dependent. There might be times where that's something you want to be training. But when we're talking about things that we want to grow, we want that thing to be the limiting factor. And when we look at something like a front squat or a deadlift, we just have a lot of these times where the thing you're trying to grow might not be the actual limiter. And so I think we got, there's, there's this misunderstanding of stability. And one of the things I wrote down was like, how, how much external stability, how much stability can I create without actually having to put forth any effort? How much can I get into a position and set it and forget it and just pull on the thing I'm trying to pull or press on the thing I'm trying to press or extend the knee or whatever it is. And so I think that there's this misunderstanding of stability. Maybe you could touch on a little bit of like, yeah, it engages the core or it requires stability said in a tone of this is a positive thing when for hypertrophy might actually not be a positive thing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I think so. I think a lot of people confuse stability with balance. Um, so, you know, when I think of stability 
or when people generally think of stability, they think of like BOSU balls and standing on one leg and doing single leg RDLs where you're trying to not fall over. And, you know, that's, that's fine in certain contexts. I, I, I can imagine, but, you know, for hypertrophy focused goals, it's like, do I really want to be, to be training my balance as if I'm like trying to train for some sort of like, I don't know, circus act. And the answer inevitably is no. And obviously like what I actually have found to be super helpful in like my own balance. Cause like, you know, occasionally I'll just be standing there like watching someone do an exercise. I'll just like pick one foot up and see if, you know, I can like balance on the other foot. And that ability over time has gotten way, way, way better just by like training calves and training uh, anterior tip. And, you know, it seems kind of silly, but like that, that is actually one application of where like hypertrophy could meet you know, these people where they are from the standpoint of like, uh, you know, if someone actually had a goal in like trading their balance for some reason, you know, I would know how to go about that. So anyway, not to be, you know, become too tangential with things. Uh, I think that people generally speaking are definitely confusing stability with balance and stability you have from, from two perspectives, you have like the external stability and then you have the internal stability. So, you know, uh, if you're doing, let's say we'll stick with the lat pull down example, like, are you using a chest support? Um, are you, are you doing an exercise that's single arm and using, you know, something to, uh, to put your knee on while you press into the, to the bench with the opposite hand? Um, or are you finding that like, as soon as you start to pull, maybe your torso rotates in the opposite direction, or you feel like you're getting pulled up out of whatever you're sitting on, you know, so those are all good examples of like where you would be unstable externally. Um, an example of maybe where you would be unstable internally is if you found that some sort of antagonist tissue wasn't doing its job appropriately, which would obviously be uh, context dependent. But for instance, if again, we're going to stick with the lat example, like maybe in that end range stretch position of wherever I'm, you know, training again, in the lat pull example, maybe I feel a sense of like my shoulder blade, maybe moving where it's not supposed to, um, or just this general sense of like, I'm not really able to pull well, but I understand that like the rest of, you know, my system is, is locked into place with the bench support and with the arm support. Um, you know, maybe I just, I just have this sense of like, I'm not able to actually produce as much force. This is why you see differences. I think a lot of the times just between arms, uh, potentially just because you see differences in, in supporting uh, structures uh, that are supposed to co-contract and, and stabilize these kinds of things. Yeah, and I would want people out there who are like, and then we have to, you know, if anytime someone's like, hey, should I do this? Is it, is it a good movement? There's just like a big massive question of like, what compared to what and what else are you also doing currently? Um, mm -hmm. But I just think if we're just looking super myopically, super zoomed in without some of that context, because sometimes it's not that you can't give that over Instagram or in a DM or in a Q and A and sometimes you want to, but you're like, Hey, like if these things are in check, then okay, we can actually maybe make an answer of like X might be better than Y. I think this amount of stability or internal stability that is required. If when that goes up the, you know, how good this might be for hypertrophy probably goes down. If I can have two exercises that are all the same, maybe even just hypothetically speaking, but one of them I have to brace really hard internally. Another one, I just fucking put my hand against the bench and I don't have to think about anything else. I'm gonna choose that one. I'm gonna choose, I guess for a number of reasons, let's say, um, you know, not a half kneeling position with no brace and instead maybe a chest support or, you know, in a half kneeling position, but with my arm braced against something. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of people are actually, I've seen a lot of people intuitively be able to choose between those two, but not actually understand what they're, they're like, oh, this feels better. And I'm like, want to help people understand that. It's like, yeah, it's because you've set yourself up in a situation where you have to expend less energy peripherally or other tissues that you're not trying to grow. And you can actually just get to the point of what you're trying to do. And this isn't, it's not, 
I don't want to take that idea and extrapolate it too far of like, we need to be 100% isolating one thing at all times. And you can't ever be doing exercises that work, you know, whatever compound lifts, multi uh, joint movements, but there is some element of like zooming out to a certain degree and hitting everything all at once and having to train your core stability while you're doing the arm, while you're balancing on one foot, we're doing too many things. And even the balance component's gonna decrease like neurological output if you're like trying to also balance on one foot. Um, and I just think that the, it, when you're looking for setups, there are so many, you know, Coach Kaz has talked about, there's like a zillion different ways to set up an iliac pull down or single arm pull down. There are so many ways mm -hmm. to set up a press around, but the ones where you can create higher degree of external stability, so you have to do less work, whether it's your core or fighting anti-rotational forces or whatever, that's going to be a plus, I would almost say all the time, but more often than not, would you agree? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, to, to make an extreme point, like the where powerlifters fail is in like the internal stability of the movement. They don't they have they're not grabbing onto anything other than a bar uh, and they're out in free space. So, you know, powerlifting is like the king example of, you know, most people don't even really know what's limiting them when they do a squat or when they do a bench, they're just like, ah, the bar stopped moving. And then like they throw a dart at a board and they're like, Oh, it was my packs or, Oh, it was my triceps. Or it's like, Oh, maybe it was just too heavy. But um, you know, I think that you, the reason that you don't see a lot of pro bodybuilders like doing, I mean, obviously exceptions, C bum will deadlift and stuff. But uh, you know, I think that the reason you don't see a lot of pro bodybuilders doing like the SBDs three times a week, two times a week, uh, is just because you have to expend so much energy uh, through so much of your system that it's like, uh, is any one tissue really, really going to be, you know, the limiter? And in a lot of cases, obviously not. Um, but generally speaking, like with compound movements, that's like the way that your body kind of self-organizes is basically like, I'm just not going to make any. I'm going to kind of do a little of everything here, which is why you see people's hips shooting back, you know, in a squat or maybe in a deadlift to try to basically just redistribute loads. So basically what bodybuilding is, is trying to prevent your body from redistributing load so that you can just pick on one guy or two guys or three guys to, to do a particular job. So you coach, you, I know you coach, you have a powerlifting program and a hypertrophy program. And it's interesting because there are no constraints. There are no mandatory lifts in hypertrophy. So we totally can zoom in and just sync up with what might be the optimal arm path for this and resistance profiles. And there's, we can choose from any exercise that accomplishes the task that we want to. There are no constraints. But with powerlifting, we have three main lifts that must be done. And so you don't have as much freedom to, I mean, you do have some freedom within those lifts but the goal will always be not lining things up perfectly to isolate or bias one tissue to grow one thing. It will be to lift the most weight. And so when we do see this like big, we're in the midst of this potentially like huge surge of obsession with biomechanics and optimizing technique and lining things up correctly. Do you feel like there is some of that that's still overflowing into the powerlifting world? Obviously maybe you can touch on the actual lifts, a squat bench deadlift, but maybe just overall powerlifting program. What are some of the changes that you've seen in the midst of the last like five years of this biomechanic boom that have started to be applied maybe just by you with your um, athletes or just in general within the powerlifting community? I think that um, more and more coaches are, are starting to actually gain an interest um, in this kind of stuff because they realize, or maybe hopefully some of them are starting to realize that um, the, the big three themselves, a lot of the time, um, are, are not very biomechanically, we'll say advantageous, 
movements for many people, right? So you take the, the super long femur relative to torso person and you ask them to, you know, squat so that their hip creases below their knee. And it's like, they look like, you know, a baby giraffe, uh, you know, trying to lift a barbell. Uh, and then meanwhile, you ask like, uh, you know, someone with half the length of a femur is relative to torso to do a squat. And it's like this beautiful, like very uh, piston. Yeah. This piston like squat. Uh, and they don't even need heels to do it or something. Right. So you have this like massive difference across clients and across coaches in terms of like what their viewpoint on this stuff is, because some people work with athletes who are just like, they're meant to do the lifts. Like look at Russell or he, right. He's like, he's like built to power lift and he's jacked. And all he does is squat bench deadlift and then like get a, you know, a 20 minute pump or whatever, uh, after, after his workouts. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at that and they assume that that can be them until they start to, you know, do it and then feel like crap all the time. So to get to the, to get to the uh, question, I would say that like over the past, maybe two years, I've definitely seen more and more coaches like starting to learn more about this stuff, uh, which is like super cool. And a lot of the people that I coach from like a powerlifting standpoint are actually like, they work with athletes themselves. Um, and so it's cool to kind of like, um, be able to answer questions for them that they can then, you know, uh, apply that information to, to their athletes. And what I'm starting to see a lot of, uh, in, in my own athletes to speak to my own experience is just people generally feeling a lot better and, and getting bigger and stronger at the same time. So I kind of take this approach now where it's like, yeah, obviously powerlifting is the focus with a powerlifter, but I'm, I'm trying to give people as little of the competition lifts as they need um, while building this kind of like suit of armor in the background. Um, so that when it does come time to like ramp up the volume, ramp up the intensity, the frequency of all the lifts, their, their system is prepared to do it. And they haven't been just like chronically stressing these positions over time that then can lead to, to incidents, you know, maybe close to meet time or during meet time where, you know, all of a sudden it's like a hamstring pops and people just think that this is like a random thing and like, oh, you can't predict injury. And it's like, yeah, no, probably not. But like, if you just look at the person's squat and you see how wide and awful it looks and like, you know, you go down to the, do the squat and all of a sudden it's like something pops. It's like, eh, that wasn't, you know, that was a math equation, right? That was basically just uh, a, a net force equation. So um, I try to be as educational as possible with clients while at the same time trying to make sure that I'm not like exuding this vibe of like fear mongering. Cause I think there is this worry that like, you know, people can, as we said earlier, move on to this fragile side of things, um, which I definitely am, am not trying to encourage. It's actually the opposite where it's like, I'm trying to empower people and, and get them to understand that like, if they are experiencing pain with the squat bench and deadlift, it's not necessarily their fault. It's just like, these are exercises that people think that they need to be able to be built for when in reality, it's like so many people just are not. So I'm just trying to find ways around that and, and hopefully long-term, you know, get more and more people to understand that it's more about just kind of like building the engine and then expressing all of that uh, in, in terms of the actual output on the lifts. In my mind, it feels like you'd want as little of the competition lifts as would be needed for that sort of like neurological specificity to like actually be able to execute this movement well. And you'd want to yeah. spend as much time and we could put, you could put ratios on that, which would have to be super specific and context dependent. But um, where if we're not doing the competition lifts, do you reprioritize what the goal of a certain exercise might be? Like if I'm now doing a press around or I'm doing an illic pull down or I'm doing, I mean, 
those might not be very specific or have a lot of carryover. Let's choose other accessory movements for a power lifter. Have you shifted the lens of the most important thing right now is to lift the most weight? Or are we back in this mode of lining things up op optimally biomechanics anatomy wise and actually depending on whether it's a hypertrophy adaptation for that tissue or a neurological adaptation, like you've turned the lens back to like, okay, I'm not worried about you lifting the most weight at all costs right now. I'm worried about, you know, some of these biomechanic things and making sure your joint health is optimal and stuff like that. Yeah. So I always try to frame it uh, in a way that like actually matters to the person because I think some people, some clients are just really willing to like go with the flow and not even ask a, uh, ask a question and just like do whatever you say. And then other people are like asking 10 questions a day and they need to know every intricate detail of every decision you make. And so, you know, obviously that's quite, you know, the spectrum that you can, can be dealing with. But I would say ultimately on either side of that spectrum is like, okay, on one hand, you know, I don't really have to, to say anything. I can kind of just like write my plan. They'll do the plan, whatever. But on the other side, there's this, I think, um, I think some trainers and coaches get into the mindset of like, you have to always, you know, appeal to the client or the athlete and like, try to try to do what they want to do. But I think, you know, there's a fine line between doing that and also doing what's best for them. And I think a lot of that times the bridge, a lot of the times the bridge between those two things can just be the education, right? So if I say to someone, you know, who's, who's an 18 year old, you know, dude going into college, like, Hey, you know, we're going to get stronger on the SBD, but like, I want to get you really, really jacked so that like you can express that strength. It's like, that's a way that I'll frame it to a lot of people that, you know, then maybe resonates more with them. Um, and I also try again to, to express it in a way that's actually, you know, related to their goals. So if they're really, really set on like doing the SPD, like we're definitely going to do that. Um, but at the same time, uh, again, uh, education, I think becomes a big, uh, a big part of this. So for instance, like with the bench press and we could use the the squat or the deadlifts also, but we'll just say we're focused on bench as the example. A lot of people will say like, um, you know, Spoto bench is the best accessory or close grip is the best accessory or long pause bench is the best accessory. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? Like, how do you know that it has carryover? How do you know that it's like this special variation that's doing this special thing? I don't think any of that is actually possible to do. Like, even if you standardize every single exercise in the program, if one thing changes, that's not, uh, that's not directly related, uh, to, you know, all of all of the lifting stuff. It's like, now you've just thrown an entire wrench in the program. Like what if, you know, your client breaks up with their girlfriend, right? I've had that happen multiple times where their performance is just really poor. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. The program is, you know, it's going as written, uh, but they're not hitting their numbers. And then like two weeks later, I find out, Oh shit. Like, you know, is this girl broke his heart? This is terrible. This is terrible. Right. So that's like a one specific example where it had nothing to do with the lifting itself. But like this other factor, you know, uh, was potentially creating this result that was, you know, that that wasn't uh, desired. So, you know, if you're making the connection that like, oh, close grip bench did this, it's like, okay, you you basically just assume that like every other variable, of the, uh, you know, within this person's life was exactly isolated, was frozen in time, and you change this one thing, and this, and you know, and, and it had this effect. And I don't think that anyone is actually uh, able to do that confidently. So instead of taking that approach, which I have explained to some people people who are willing to actually listen to all of that. Um, I take the approach of like, Hey, all right. I know my pecs are involved in a bench press to some degree, depending on how I bench. I know my delts are involved and I know my triceps are involved. So I'm going to train the hell out of those three tissues in a way that's 
biomechanically best for those tissues. And, you know, logically there's, there's no, there's no way if I have more surface area, if I improve the strength of all those muscles on all the other accessories that I'm doing from a bodybuilding perspective, that that wouldn't net in some sort of increase in output on the main lifts. I think there are a few exceptions to that rule. Like if you're, you know, an 83 kg lifter, who's been lifting for 15 years and you're at the top of the, of the food chain, like is adding, you know, two pounds of muscle going to be like the thing that pushes you forward. Probably not. You're probably going to need more specificity, but that's not 99% of people. So I think more people just need to kind of focus on actually just building their, again, their suit of armor um, and, and letting that kind of carry them through to, to all the main lifts. I guess I'm biased, but I'll, people will DM and they'll ask Q&As and they'll say, oh, what should I do, strength training or hypertrophy training? And I always just laugh as if like, first of all, you're going to get both doing both. Most people ask, if you don't if you don't know this, then you yeah. you probably don't have enough muscle where you're not going to get both doing either. But I also just laugh because I just, maybe I'm biased. I, I, I like hypertrophy training for whatever. I live in it. This is my, my little, you know, spectrum, my little drop in the pond here. But um, I feel like most people unless you want to specifically, you have an emotional attachment or you want to compete with those three lifts, SBD, squat bench, deadlift, you want to actually do powerlifting or you have an emotional attachment, some goal that is emotionally driven or you want to deadlift two times your body weight, whatever it is, like just, if you do hypertrophy training, you're gonna get, it's, it's understanding of like, you're gonna get really strong. You're just gonna get really strong at more hypertrophy based lift in more of a hypertrophy based rep range, you're still going to get strong and chances are everybody's going to get strong enough. You could get beyond strong enough for functional life doing hypertrophy training. Mm -hmm. So unless you have like an emotional attachment to performing these lifts in competition or it's something you've always wanted to do, like you do hypertrophy training, you're gonna get strong as fuck. You're just gonna do it in a, you know, six to 15 rep range instead of like a one to four rep range and maybe not at the specific squat bench dead, which by the way, you'll also get stronger at because of, you know, we just talked about like if you're growing those tissues that are involved in those movements, even if you don't do them, you know, or even if you're not solely specifically working on them, you'll still get stronger at them. Um, I just yeah. always laugh because I'm like, most people want to get jacked and want to be strong enough to have a robust, like physical autonomy for as long as possible. And chances are, the irony is chances are you could do strength training and hypertrophy and probably still accomplish both of those. But it's almost like people are like, I really want to get really strong. I care about being strong. I'm like, cool. Talk to me in three years of proper hypertrophy training. You'll be strong as fuck. And so it's just like this like, misconception, especially if you are somebody who listened to that and like, I don't really know what the difference is. Chances are you could do either and you're going to get both. Yeah. And I think that social media plays a big role in this too, because what you see is like the highlight reel of the elite of the elite athletes. And then, you know, everyone assumes that that is the reality of the sport and that people need, you know, to bench four times a week and to squat two to three and to deadlift one to two. And it's like, I think actually very, very few people uh, need that and would benefit most from that. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong, obviously, as we've said, with just people enjoying doing the lifts. I'm all for that. Uh, but I think if people are actually concerned mostly with the objective, like how, you know, what will be best for me? orthopedically long-term, what would be best for me from, from an actual, uh, you know, joint health tissue health standpoint. Um, you know, I, I, I really let those people run with the bodybuilding stuff for as much time as I can, uh, with as, again, as little volume of, of those main lifts as, as is necessary. Yeah. Perfect segue to our next topic is, is going to be, we're going to be talking about butt winks, not a good segue at all, but it's something uh -oh. I just checked the time and I was like, we got to talk about butt winking. Butt winking is like <laughs> the most, it, it, 
you, depending on who you ask, you're going to get the most fragile or the or the most it doesn't matter answer, uh, and mm-hmm. everywhere in between. And and I suppose it's like beats a dead horse of like how much context and nuance there is around this. But let's talk about what is a butt wink. What's happening anatomically? What might be the process and conversation that you would have? You've actually done a couple of these good carousel posts where you're like, this is a problem that I've solved with the client and the communication and the and the tactics and and tricks that I've used with them. Like you have a client. Let's paint the picture. You have a client comes in. You're just running them through a workout, seeing how they move. Um, they have a butt wink, let's say, in the squat, and they might actually even know what that is. And they're like, oh my God, I saw the video on butt winking. This is bad. What should I do about it? How are we framing that conversation? What are some of the things you're going to talk through with them? What might be some of the things you're going to do as their coach? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is I think most athletes um, don't realize it when they're doing it, which is like, it's usually a good starting point because usually I actually don't need to say anything uh, and explain anything to anyone. But I think for coaches and for personal trainers who are like, you know, have a genuine concern about their clients. I don't think that butt wink is this evil forbidden thing that like no one can do under any circumstance, but I do think that the effects of it uh, vary widely as far as um you know, is it going to be negative for someone or is it really not going to matter at all? Right. Because you see people doing butt winks with like seven, 800 pounds on their backs. uh, But you also see people doing a butt wink and a body weight squat. And it's like crippling them uh, from a, from a painful perspective. Um, So clearly it's like, there's not an answer uh, and clearly it's, it's context dependent, but like, what does it depend on? That's the interesting thing. So starting kind of out, you know, with the definition, I would say that butt wink is basically uh, the body's substitution for hip flexion. So usually what you see happen with people is like they get to a certain point in a squat and their lower back starts to round and it starts to flex over, right? That's what people commonly will see. But the interesting thing is that it, a lot of times it can happen really, really early, uh, but it can also happen really, really late. So, you know, someone, maybe it just happens right before their butt touches the ground, Maybe for someone else, it's like it happens almost immediately. And you're like, okay, what's going on? So one of the one of the factors that's that's really relevant here is just relative limb length. So, like, you know, we mentioned earlier the long femured uh short torso person. For the most part, that person's not gonna be able to do a body weight squat without some sort of butt wig strategy. And that's fine. People think that's a bad thing. Again, it's just like a, it's just a a physics equation of like, how am I going to get from point A to point B? Uh, You know, your body doesn't care whether you do it through your hips, your ankles, your knees, your spine, or all of those. So I think mostly um, from the standpoint of like, you know, why it happens and, and who it happens more in, typically I see it happen more in people who are inclined to take narrow stances. Uh, just because structurally you have less hip flexion there. Um, And people who, uh, from a structural standpoint, have a little bit longer femurs relative to their torso and to their tibias. Um, The people who tend to think that butt wink is not a problem are the people who are able to stay very, very upright in their squat where there's not a huge like leverage shift between uh, what's doing work relative from quads to erectors and and glutes and stuff like that. Um, I think people have tried to... um, tried to pinpoint the reason that someone may experience butt wing to like muscular weakness. Um, but I actually think that has very little, if anything to do with why it actually happens. Again, I think it's mostly just a physics equation. Um, and, and what you can do and people are, are super against this is just like, 
change the depth of the squat. Like what a crazy thought you can change the, like how deep someone is squatting. And sometimes it's as simple as, Hey, like maybe just let your chest drop a little bit more. So, you know, you're not trying to stay as extended. And so you don't have to make up for that range with your, with your lower spine as you go down. Uh, but maybe it's like, I'm going to change the stance. Maybe I'm going to turn my toes out. Maybe I'm going to widen my stance a little bit, and maybe I'm going to elevate my heels as I do that. So, you know, void the context of like powerlifting, it's super easy to work around. It's just like change the stance, change the way that the person is oriented, change whatever is under their heels or not change the loading strategy is the, is the bar on their back. Maybe put it, you know, in a front rack position, or maybe just put it like, maybe uh, give them a, a trap bar uh, in, in, instead, or maybe put a barbell in front of them in their hands. Uh, if they are a powerlifter, that's where you have to, you know, start to start to conversation of like, all right, well, I know I have to do this lift in competition. So um, I have to kind of figure out a way to make this somewhat sustainable of a strategy for me. And for some people, again, it might not be an issue, uh, but for others, you know, they could be, they could be hypersensitive to the position. So again, usually what I'll have those people who experience a lot of that in, in a painful way do is I just tell out their stance a little bit. I have them get a pair of heels, uh, and I have them try to make their squat as, as hingy as possible, because usually if they try to stay too upright, uh, it tends to happen a little bit earlier. So there's always a workaround and specifically, there's always a workaround uh, with hypertrophy focused training. Like, you know, if you're someone who's a bodybuilder or you want to bodybuild, like you don't even have to squat, right? Like God forbid. Um, but if you are a powerlifter and you do have to work around it and it does give you trouble, um, play around with the stance, play around with the, the foot situation through heel and through toe orientation, uh, and then play around with the loading strategy for as long as you can. And I think that this is, you are spoken as someone who has done this with people in person. And so when you were saying that, I just remember in that moment when yep. I used to work with people in person that these are like things that are happening very quickly. It's like, Hey, let's try widening up the stance a little bit. Let's try externally rotating, pushing the foot toes out a little bit. Um, you know, let's try, like you said, making it a little hingier, you know, leaning forward a little bit earlier, um, put getting some heels, elevating their heels. Um, and, and it is interesting because at the end of the day, we work from the, uh, under the umbrella, specifically non powerlifters are working under this umbrella of, you don't actually even have to do this. And so we are going to work through this. We are going to, if I'm seeing someone with a butt wink and who's like, you know, okay, fine, we can work on this, but just remember that to achieve the goal that you have, which is hypertrophy for this X, Y, Z tissue, we have many different ways that we can go about doing this. And if you're, like you said, anatomically or anthropometrically not inclined to be doing this you know, really well to get a fully lengthened quad, you know, at the bottom of a ass to grass squat or something like that. Um, there are other ways for you to achieve that. And so I think we have to come at it from that <laughs> yeah. point of, you don't have to do this. We're going to, we're going to run through it. Cause I know you like squatting and, you know, even if you don't like squatting, there are certain contexts where you, from a variation perspective, or maybe you have people who work out at home where it's like, okay, we might just also want more tools in the toolbox. We don't always want to be doing the same fucking thing, even just from an emotional enjoyment perspective. Like I want, I have a group program for people who just work at home. I really want those people to be able to back squat at least relatively well for glutes and relatively well for more quads, just even a little bit, one standard deviation in each of those directions, mm -hmm. just so they have two, two extra exercises for lengthened, you know, portion of those muscles. Um, and, you know, but for my group, uh, for the group that's at the, in the gym, it's like, well, you know, we have a hack squat, we have a leg press and we always have split squats and, you know, whatever it is, squats or other ways to train those length of positions. And they're not exactly the same, but we have other tools in the toolbox. And so, that context is obviously relevant, but I definitely think that it, 
it, people get emotionally attached to something they saw on the internet that it has to look this way. There's a misunderstanding of your bone structure. You've mentioned on a number of occasions that the length of your femur in relation to your torso and tibia is plays a massive role. It, it, it plays an unbelievable role in what your squat is going to look like, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. There are other things, sure, but those are that's a huge thing that is not in your control. And so I think educating people on that of like, hey, we're gonna do the best that we can with the structure that you're given. Uh, but at the end of the day, you also outside of powerlifting don't have to be doing this. We have these other tools. And like you said, I love the first thing you said was just like modifying the range of motions. Like maybe we're not going to get a fully lengthened or fully in air quotes, lengthened quad or glute or adductor or whatever trying to work here. But maybe this could be a great exercise for the mid range. And that might be the tool or what this exercise becomes in terms of the tool and the toolkit. And so I love that. I think that's a good conversation to have. I just think this is just too much of an emotional attachment to, I think the average person just misunderstanding. We've talked about it a million times on this podcast, not having to do certain exercises, but where let's do, go a little bit into this discussion of like, is it bad? Um, you had mentioned it a little bit, but I'd ask you more straight up. Like if you have someone's like, who oh, is this bad? How are we going about communicating the answer to that question to somebody? Oh, well, see, that's a tricky one, right? Cause you know, some people, some people are, are hypersensitive to you sounding like a snob and some people are not. So, you know, if I'm talking to the person that I'm able to give context to, um, what I'll, what I'll often say is like, is it good or bad? I, I usually say neither. It just kind of is, it's like a very like, you know, Buddhist mentality, if you will, but it kind of just like is a thing that happens and we don't have to make a judgment about it. We don't have to have this whole emotional cascade of like, what is life? And why can't I do this deadlift without a butt wink? Or why can't I do this squat without a butt wink? Um, and, and that's the sad reality for a lot of people is like some people are just never going to be able to get in a conventional stance and bend down to grab a bar with, with no spinal flexion. Like it's just not going to happen for a lot of people. Um, and, and so I think coming to just accept that and find ways around it is, is the better solution uh, rather than trying to answer the question of like whether it's good or bad, because the reality is that it's, it's ultimately neither an absolute. But again, if you're working with the person who you know, Stu McGill does, uh, people give Stu McGill heat, uh, you know, a lot of the time on the internet, which I think is oftentimes it's short-sighted. I've worked with him or talked to him personally. He's, he's a, a very, very good practitioner in my opinion. Um, and he has said that what he does with his clients uh, to, to discover whether or not butt wink is problematic is he literally tells them to get under a barbell, just an empty bar, and just like go through a butt wink, like intentionally do a butt wink. And I think he actually, you know, has run experiments or I don't know if they were formal or informal where he had a certain number of participants do that. And like half the people were like, oh, shit, this bothers me. And the other half were like, yeah, it feels fine. Right. And that's like somewhat of a good proxy because a lot of people, it's not like they're doing, but they're not like butt winking at the top of the movement. They're butt winking where they're in the hole and where they're experiencing like a greater degree of hip flexion and moment arm from load to, to all the joints. Um, but I think, you know, it's a good starting point uh, to actually get someone to experience something physically if they're having, a, you know, a, a little bit of trouble trying to conceptualize what you're saying from the standpoint of like trying to be more neutral about it. So I think that if you take a stance on either side, you're, you're um, not going to be resonating with a certain group of people, because if you say that it's bad and there are all these people over here that have never experienced pain doing it, then they're like, oh, you dude, you're an idiot. Right. And then all the people on the other 
other side of that would be like, yeah, I really resonate with you and you're great. So I think your role as a coach is just to be able to like deal with that situation and, and kind of bounce back and, and mirror the client as far as like, you know, if they do think that it's bad, you know, trying to understand why they think that it's bad, uh, or if they think it's totally fine and, you know, maybe they're getting pain and they're in, in total denial about it, um, you know, working with that person as well to maybe understand, Hey, like these are the things we can do and framing it, not from the perspective of like, here's why you have pain, but more so from like, Hey, maybe this would be better for you. Cause you're, you'll be more efficient, right. Or you'll be stronger in this, in this movement, or you'll build more muscle in this tissue. Um, so ultimately about, you know, the, the client in front of you, of course, but I think that, uh, it, it depends upon all those, you know, things. It's important to ask your client, is this bothering you? Like, do you have, do you currently have pain? Am I about to bring about, uh, am I about to tell you something that's bad that really isn't bad, at least currently? I think that the fear is like, if I keep doing this, will I develop pain? And that's a secondary question, but we at least mm -hmm. don't sound the alarm for a client who's like, I'm doing this. I feel I've been hypertrophying these tissues and I feel fine doing this. I think there's also a question of like magnitude of butt wink. Are we, you know, like where, one, where is this happening to? Do you have pain? Three, objectively, is this, a large butt wink or are we talking about just like, you know, you're running out of hip flexion and there's an inch of extra range of motion that you've acquired now via this like lumbar flexion. And so um, would you say like, okay, I'm asking the client, okay, do you currently have pain? That's gonna direct me in, in this like, okay, if you currently are having pain, this is bothering you, you're, you're cognizant of it when it's happening, you can feel it happening and it doesn't feel good. I think that that is like, okay, we're working on like a flow chart here. That's gonna bring me down the path of like probably more, not more aggressively, but more likely to pursue the sorts of tactics that we talked about previously where we might get rid of this. If someone's like, I don't, I don't even feel it. I don't even know what's happening. And maybe it's a objectively small amount of butt wink. Then I think we at least just generally might softly lean in the direction of, okay, maybe it's not something we need to, you know, stop everything you're doing and fix this before we ever do another squat. And if there's this whole fucking spectrum in between those two things. But I think a lot of people are like, the first question I'm asking is, is like, how do you feel when this happens? You know, you're doing this tiny butt wink that I can only see when I fucking slow it down to 10% of the movement, uh, mm -hmm. the video speed. And you've been doing this for a decade and you feel good and you feel strong and just, you've never had any issues. I'm not saying that's gonna be me, you know, wiping my hands of it and you can just go on and do this forever. I'm never gonna change anything. But <laughs> it definitely makes me, feel a certain way as a practitioner of like, okay, this is where I'm placing this in terms of the hierarchy of importance and how much I'm going to sound the alarm on this. Yeah. I think that, um, what like my, my approach generally is actually to try to, and some people will get, you know, probably triggered by this, but I try to avoid clients butt winking because I don't see a downside to try to get them to avoid it, but I do potentially see downside with just allowing them to do it. And <clears throat> I think that if you can do that without them knowing that's best case scenario, best case scenario, I never bring it up. It never comes up. It's never a thing. It's never a conversation. It's just like a, a you know, an adjustment of where is the load or like, where's their stance again, all the things we mentioned earlier. Um, but you know, that's a little bit more difficult to do if you're coaching someone online. Like I know so many powerlifting coaches do, or pretty much every powerlifting coach, right. On the, is on, is on the internet for the most part. Um, so if it is something to do with, um, you know, that setting, then what I'll try to do is just give feedback in a way. Again, that has nothing really directly to do with it. I won't say, oh, let your chest drop because you're butt winking. I'll just say, you know, let your chest drop and just think about like pushing your knees forward more. Um, just as simple as, as humanly possible. Um, again, trying to avoid that whole conversation if it it is possible. Yeah, I love that. I think that you, the, uh, the fact that there's no downside and 
there's no downside of trying to fix it. There's only upside. There's only potential upside uh, and only potential downside. And so if you're like, mm, it's it's not gonna make anything worse if I help you try and get rid of your butt wink. And it might be a bad thing if you keep doing this, but we don't really know. And so that's definitely how I would look at it too. It's like, there's no reason, there's no upside of butt winking, um, but there is a potential downside. I mean, the upside, you know, contextually powerlifting, if you if it's like the only way you can get to depth and, and that is mm-hmm. the trade-off you're happy to make. But for the average person listening to this podcast, interested in hypertrophy and, you know, not having hip pain and back pain forever, then there's probably no upside to continue to butt wink and probably only potential upside available to you in, in in working on it, I suppose, which you could do a plethora of different ways. Yeah. And I think just a little bit of like a mechanistic explanation to this for people would be helpful too. Like the reason that people often have injuries during spinal flexion, from what I understand, and these whole, this whole concept of like the posterior disc bulge and all that, uh, it has a lot to do, I, I think, with the uh, the the compressive, basically like the compressive forces that are consistently too far uh, uh, or too um, significant on one side of the spine. So let's say like, you know, powerlifting is a very extension dominant sport, right? It's like, there's nothing that anyone is doing in powerlifting that's like requires a lot of flexion force from the spine. So if like you're constantly training these extension force positions, there's some degree of, of um nutrition that's actually prevented from entering the disc on a, on a consistent basis, especially if you have like massive spinal erectors. Um, so, you know, given that that can be the case, it's like there can be potential downside to that flexion moment because ultimately what it's not necessarily the flexion itself. It's the flexion paired with the extension force of, of the erectors trying to basically smash the, the, um, the posterior, uh, aspect of the facet together. So like, and again, that's not like something that I will tell people or something no, that I say to be, you know, the average person yeah, to doesn't be, need to know no, that. No, no. And, and, and not to be like, you know, fear mongering in any way. It's just more like, I'm just trying to understand from, you know, a structural standpoint, why someone may be experiencing it, especially because, or especially if they may have some sort of pre-existing condition, which again, prevents nutrition to the disc, or maybe they're dealing with some degree of bulge. I know a lot of people do with no symptoms, but like maybe that wink makes it worse. Maybe, uh, that wink, uh, puts, uh, you know, creates a tipping point in which the person then experiences a tremendous amount of pain. Like you just have no idea. So again, uh, I, I just don't see a downside to trying to, to coach neutral, um, or at least slightly extended under those circumstances. Um, just because, you know, I would prefer things to fall under uh, stress on lean tissue as opposed to, um, you know, non-contractile tissue and uh, uh, tissue that's meant to basically just allow the the muscles to do what they're supposed to do, uh, like bone, like ligament, like tendon, all those things. Cool, man. Let's uh, let's wrap it up there. We're coming up on an hour. I want to be respectful of your time. I'm sure you have to, as all personal trainers, take some sort of a midday nap before you get back to evening <laughs> clients. Um, so tell everybody where they can find you. You're absolutely blowing up on Instagram. One of my favorite accounts right now. So just drop a line and and uh, people can come find you. Thanks, man. I mean, I don't take any naps. Uh, I'm not <laughs> a big napper. But uh, yeah, Instagram is just at Ben underscore Giannis or Yanes, however you prefer to say it, because I don't actually care that much. Uh, and that's where everything is. Uh, link, link in bio, as they say, you know. Uh, um, you saw that, uh, that's one of them is Chester and the other is Cheerio. Awesome. We actually got them. We got them three weeks ago, I think now three weeks ago. Yeah. Are, you, are you enjoying being cat dad? I am. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very novel thing for me. So I'm still, uh, 
I'm still kind of nervous about it. You know, I'm not really sure how I feel about it yet. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, That's cool. Kind of like I imagine having kids to be, but uh, a same less thing. Oh, yeah, totally same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. same thing. Same, same amount thing. of responsibility. All right, yeah, man. Yeah. All right, have a good rest of your day, my man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, Jordan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.